So we are continuing today a nine-week sermon series on Paul's letter to the Ephesians. We're in week six, for those of you who have been counting. And this may seem like a lot of time to spend on a short letter like this, but Ephesians is such a rich letter that actually the series could have been much longer. So far, we've actually only looked at the first two chapters, which cover theology. Paul spends those two chapters telling this mostly Gentile church broad ideas about the gospel, who Christ is, what the gospel is, what God was doing in history with the Jews first and now with these Gentiles in this amazing story of salvation. It's been really great, but it's also been a little heady, kind of academic. But in the third chapter, which we start today, Paul gets practical. It's, it's like he's saying, now that you know what the gospel is, we're going to talk about what it means to actually put it into practice. It's kind of like getting a driver's license. You know, first you have to take the written test. And that's fine and good. It's important to know academically how a car is meant to be driven. But of course, you can't get your license until you actually get behind the wheel of a car and drive it. And not on a track but in Philadelphia traffic, right? With all the craziness that that involves. That's when your head knowledge becomes real knowledge. And so that's what Paul's gonna do for the rest of this letter. He's gonna show the Ephesians what it looks like to be a Christian in the world. That, you know, it's one thing to know that you're supposed to love your enemies. Of course, that's what Jesus told us to do. But it's quite another thing to actually love them. It's one thing to know intellectually that Christ died for you. It's quite another to tell the Roman soldiers who are arresting you that you're not going to renounce your faith, even though it means prison and death. Because what that involves is suffering for a purpose. And that's what Paul will talk about today in this third chapter of Ephesians. What happens when you actually have to endure suffering because of your faith in Christ? Let's imagine that you have a powerful conversion experience. Christ has claimed your heart. You have a new sense of purpose and direction. But then life suddenly becomes more difficult. What do you do? Do you take the easy road or do you say, I'll follow Christ no matter where he leads me? Let's turn to this reading. It's from Ephesians chapter 3. I'm actually going to start by looking at just the first sentence. This is what Paul says. This is the reason that I, Paul, am a prisoner for Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. Now, I want to stop here for a minute because the first sentence is important. Paul says, I, Paul, am a prisoner for Christ Jesus. There are two meanings of this sentence. The first is metaphorical. Paul has become a prisoner of Christ, meaning he's bound by his faith commitments. His life belongs to Christ. He can't do whatever he wants. He's not free anymore. He's a prisoner of Christ. And now, as I'll talk about in a few minutes, that being in prison for Christ is actually the road to real freedom. But first, I need to explain the other meaning of this sentence. When Paul says, I am a prisoner, he means this quite literally because he wrote this letter from prison. 
Paul is a clever writer. He's also living proof proof of the truth that he is preaching, which is that being a Christian often involves suffering. In Paul's case, he was attacked by Jewish leaders who thought he was a heretic. And as we've all already seen in this series, Paul, his main message to the Gentiles is that they were now members of this covenant that God made with Abraham, which was astonishing good news for them, but of course was scandalous to certain conservative Jewish leaders. Those leaders hound Paul throughout his ministry. They try to have him arrested. Eventually they succeed, and eventually the Romans put him to death. And yet Paul's main point here is that first and foremost, he's a prisoner not of the Romans, but of Christ. And therefore, any other prison is not really that important. As long as he is bound to Christ, He's exactly where he needs to be. But let's keep reading, because I think the next thing he writes will make this a little clearer. Paul continues, Of this gospel I have become a servant according to the gift of God's grace that was given to me by the working of his power. Although I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to me to bring the Gentiles the news of the boundless riches of Christ And to make everyone see what is the plan of mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church the wisdom of God in its rich variety might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose that he has carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. In whom we have access to God in boldness and confidence through faith in him. I pray, therefore, that you may not lose heart over my sufferings for you. They are your glory. This is the word of the Lord. So I want to make three points in my sermon, and I'll try to make them as brief as possible, I promise. Number one, truth, the kind of truth that Paul is talking about in this passage, is objective. Number two, that objective truth is meant to be shared. And number three, that objective truth is what gives meaning to suffering. So number one, truth is objective. Paul says to the Ephesians here, I have become a servant according to the gift of God's grace that was given to me by the working of his power. We have already talked about what that means. Paul received a vision that changed his life. He was on the road to Damascus to arrest Christians He was struck by a vision of Jesus appearing to him, saying, Paul, why are you persecuting me? He suddenly understood that everything he had believed was wrong, that Christ really was the Messiah. He saw it. He heard it. He knew it was true with his mind. He knew it was true with his heart. And pretty soon, he understood what that meant, that his life had to change. He had to do a 180. He had to stop persecuting the church and start growing the church. And of course, as we all know, he became the greatest apostle in history. This is a literal statement. None of us would be sitting in these pews today if not for Paul. He took the gospel to the world. But it all came down to this one fundamental thing. Paul believed that what he saw that day on the road to Damascus was true. Maybe that sounds trivial to you. You might say, of course he thought it was true. 
And yet it's actually radical to say that right now because we all live in a postmodern time in which most people think truth is relative. I have my truth. You have your truth. I believe that Christ might have been raised, but I certainly don't want to offend you by telling you about that. I mean, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe my faith is just something that gives meaning to my life on a, in a very private, individual way, but it's not any more true than whatever you believe that helps you to make sense of your life. And of course, that could include atheism, that could include astrology, that could include some political movement that has acts as, as a religion for you. Whatever works for you, what did John Lynn say, whatever gets you through the night is all right. It's all right. That's what most people believe today. You're free to be a Christian, just don't tell me about it. (laughs) And yet it's ironic because when it comes to some things, I find that people are not relativists. I mean, for example, scientists don't believe their theories are just opinions. They say they're, they're facts, right? Either vaccines work or they don't work. That's not a subjective idea. Either climate change is happening or it's not happening. I mean, nor do people tend to be relativists when it comes to their own morality. People are out there in the streets fighting for social justice. Why? Why would they fight for that? Is it merely a power play, as the postmodernist would have us believe? No. They fight for people's rights because they believe them to be true. But there's a problem. A lot of those people never stop to ask why these things are true. Why do I know that human beings have right in the first place? rights in the first place. I can't measure human rights. I can't take a picture of them. I can't do a test to determine if people have rights. It's a belief that I have. What is that belief based in? If they followed that logic to its conclusion, what they might find would disturb them because what they would find is that the only logical basis for human rights is God. You can't believe people have rights unless you believe that God created them with rights. Because if all we are is the product of meaningless random evolution, I feel like I'm a little bit ranting here, forgive me. My wife hates it when I preach like this. <laughs> but I'm going to try to tone, da- tone it down a little bit and just try to get the information to you. If all we are is the product of meaningless evolution, what that logically means is that there is no objective morality. There are no rights. Things just are. And if you don't believe me, I'm going to quote somebody that you might believe, Richard Dawkins, the famous biologist and uh, atheist. Dawkins wrote a book called The Blind Watchmaker, meaning that evolution is blind. It has no purpose. It has no direction. It just happens. And therefore, it could go in one direction, and that would be okay. And it could go in another direction, and that could be okay. There's no God to direct it. Everything is random. Now, one thing I appreciate about Dawkins is that he's very honest about the moral implications of his atheism. Here's what he writes. In a universe of electrons and selfish genes, blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt. Other people are going to get lucky. And you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. Now, let me summarize. Without God, it's impossible to talk about objective morality. 
It just doesn't work. And many people today don't believe in objective morality. They say, what's right for me may not be right for you. Let's just agree to disagree. And that sounds very nice. And it can work in limited ways. But what happens when those things that you believe in conflict with those things that I believe in? Is there any way for us to determine whether your morals are more true than my morals? There's only one way, and that's to believe that there is such a thing in objective truth. And that's what Paul believes, getting back to my first point. That's what drives Paul to sacrifice his life for the gospel, because he believes it's true. Paul does not say, Christ appeared to me, but that's private. He thought he had seen something real, objectively real, and therefore he had to share it. And that gets to point number two. Truth is always meant to be shared. There's a famous story about the English poet Samuel Coleridge. Coleridge was out in Scotland traveling around the countryside, and he visited a famous waterfall, and he got into a conversation with two tourists who were also there looking at this waterfall. One tourist looked at this waterfall And you could tell the person was in awe of what he was seeing, and he blurted out the words, my God, it's majestic. What I'm seeing is majestic. Coleridge smiled because he agreed that that was indeed the perfect word to describe the majesty of what they were seeing, that the only way to describe this sublime waterfall, the mighty sound of it, the overwhelming beauty of it, was with this particular word, majestic. And you see, Coleridge was a poet, and he understood how important words were, and that the specific word majestic contains within it an enormous amount of history and meaning, because it comes from a Latin word that can mean dignity or grandeur, and the word originally was used to describe God, and therefore this was the one right word that could have been used to describe the objectively real qualities of this waterfall. Now back to the story. There was a second tourist who was also looking at this waterfall, and Coleridge overheard this tourist say, yes, it's pretty. Coleridge didn't like that. Because to him, the word pretty was not objectively true. It did not describe the objective reality of what they were looking at. Here's my point. People today would say, none of these tourists are correct. I mean, one person to one person, the waterfall is majestic. To the other one, it's pretty. Neither are right because beauty is in the eyes of the beholder, right? Not according to Paul. When Paul saw Christ in his vision, he saw something that was majestic and dignified and grand. It was not pretty. Because what he saw was nothing less than God himself. And therefore, he had to share it because beauty demands to be shared. Let me give you a very simple example of this. I like taking walks around the city. I like to get in my steps, right? I always have my phone on me so I can track my steps. And often I will see something that amazes me or surprises me or makes me laugh. And then I do something without thinking about it. It's totally unconscious. I just reach for my phone in order to text my wife. Why do I do that? Because when we encounter something true and beautiful, it demands to be shared. It's, we don't want to keep it to ourselves. There's something about beauty that requires us to reach out and share it with other people. 
And that's what faith is meant to be like. Not that you push it down anybody's throat, but that when you see the majesty of Christ and you feel how Christ changes your heart, how could you not want to share that with somebody else? The magician Penn Jillette tells a story that I think gets at this. You may know that Penn Jillette is a, is a famous atheist, but he's also very open-minded, and he, he is always willing to talk about his philosophical ideas. And I heard him tell this remarkable story. He said that he was approached once by a Christian who handed him a Bible. He said to him, I want to share this Bible with you because I believe this Bible is true, and I care about you. Now, you might think that Gillette would be offended by that. I mean, he's an atheist. He actually said he appreciated it. This is what he said. It was really wonderful. I believe he knew that I was an atheist, but he was not defensive, and he looked me right in the eyes. It didn't seem like empty flattery. He was really kind and nice and sane, and he looked me in the eyes, and he talked to me, and then he gave me this Bible. Gillette then said, you know, I actually don't respect Christians who don't share their beliefs with me. This is why. He said, if you believe that there's a heaven and hell and that people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life and you think it's not worth telling them this because it would be socially awkward and also atheists who think that people shouldn't proselytize, that they say, just leave me alone, keep your religion to yourself. How much do you have to hate somebody not to proselytize, he asks. How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not to tell them. If I believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it and that truck was bearing down on you, there is a certain point where I would tackle you. And yet eternal life is more important than that. I mean, what do you have to lose? I mean, maybe, maybe you do talk about your faith. I don't know. But I think that for many people today, the thing that is most important to them and most beautiful to them and most transformative to them and that gives them the most meaning in life is actually something they just never talk about. They just keep it to themselves. And I think the reason this is a problem is that they're denying other people the knowledge they need to make sense of suffering. That's the third point in what I think Paul is trying to get us to understand. You remember how Paul started this passage? He was in prison, and we shouldn't mince words. Paul suffered immensely because of his faith in Christ. He endured torture and social isolation. He was constantly deprived of his physical freedom. He eventually was executed because he shared the reality that he found to be true and beautiful, and yet this faith that caused so much suffering for him, that was also how he endured that suffering. It's kind of ironic, isn't it? The same faith that caused his suffering gave him the grace to endure it. It reminds me of the great hymn, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved." It's amazing. Sharing what is true can lead to suffering, and yet the truth, that same truth, gives us the grace to go through the suffering with hope. I want to spend just a moment on this issue of suffering because, I mean, it's really the main question, isn't it? Right now in this congregation, we have several people who are in critical medical condition. All of these people are suffering. All of their bodies are breaking down in one way or another. And of course, nor is 
illness the only kind of suffering a person can endure. Everybody suffers. I can safely say that every single person in this room has been afflicted with physical or mental or social pain, rejection, betrayal, self-doubt, addiction, existential angst. I am very sensitive to this reality because when we talk about suffering, we are honestly talking about the most difficult area of human life. But I need to tell you that as Christians, we have a couple of tools that nobody else has. Number one, the atheist has no response to suffering. You remember what Dawkins said, at bottom there is no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. And so that is a dead end, we already know that. But there's also something else that truly is unique that we can talk about as Christians because we believe in the cross. No other religion has at its very center this scandalous idea that the creator of the universe suffered and died on a cross. What was the creator of the universe doing on a cross? The answer is that he was suffering. He was in agony, which means lots of things, but one thing we can say definitively is that God is not distant from the problem of human suffering. God is suffering too. And I don't think we'll ever be able to fully understand the perplexing reality of evil and suffering, but we can confidently say God is doing something in the midst of suffering. And I believe that if we could see life from his perspective, we could see that he is bringing all things into a future with hope. Now, if you know that's true, can you see how Paul had to share that? It was too majestic to keep it to himself. He knew that the only freedom that is possible is freedom in the prison of Christ, which is why he bragged about being a prisoner. He could have, he could have been physically free by denying Christ. He could have avoided a lot of physical suffering, but he knew that that would have actually put him in chains, the chains of living a life he knew to be not true. And so I think it comes down to that question that Pendulette poses. If you know the truth, if you have a beautiful story to tell about a love that sets people free by giving their lives ultimate meaning, why would you keep that to yourself? And I think it's because you've been convinced that truth is relative. You've been convinced that your experience is not real, that your experience is a subjective or private or, or, or it's something that's not really important in the grand th- scheme of things. And I want to tell you, you could not be more wrong. And I say that objectively. You see what I did there? Your subjective experience of Christ is objectively real. And therefore, you can share it. It's a fact. As Paul said elsewhere, nobody can brag about salvation because it doesn't come from us. Right? This is not some imposition. This isn't something that we didn't create. We can brag about it because it comes not from us, but from God. And so we can share the gospel in the same way that we might share our passion for a beautiful waterfall. It makes you feel small, not big. And so when you share your faith, you're doing so from a position of weakness. It's not your strength that you're talking about. It's the power of God. Why don't we end in prayer?
God, your gospel is objectively the most beautiful reality that exists. We pray that we would experience it more deeply and that its power and its beauty would humble us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.